Welcome to Business Trip, a podcast about psychedelic entrepreneurship. Business Trip explores the business models and origin stories of the most interesting companies in psychedelics. I'm Greg Kubin, and my co-host is Matthias Serebrinsky. In today's episode, we talk to the founders of Journey Clinical, Jonathan Sabag and Miriam Bart. Journey Clinical is a platform that enables licensed therapists to offer ketamine-assisted psychotherapy, also known as CAP. Journey gives licensed therapists access to their on-demand CAP-trained medical team. They provide customized treatments for each patient and a portal to connect with other therapists and educational resources. Enticed by the team, model, and vision, we are early investors in Journey Clinical through our investment arm, Symed Ventures. In this episode, we discuss how Journey Clinical went from idea to having over 100 therapist members on their platform. We also discuss their perspectives on remote ketamine sessions, group sessions, and adding other psychedelic compounds to their platform in the future. And we explore how they're balancing growth with protecting the relationship between therapist and patient. And now, to the episode. Okay, welcome to today's business trip podcast. We have Jonathan and Miriam, the co-founders of Journey Clinical, and I'm co-hosting with Matthias. Really excited to talk about Journey Clinical's origin story, as well as how they are going about building their business. One reason I'm excited about this episode is that we've known Journey Clinical and the founders for a few years now, and we were actually really early investors in Journey Clinical. We invested first at the pre-seed and then seed. So pre-seed really being two people with an idea and Ultimately, we've seen them really build this business and, and roll up their sleeves. And so kind of wanted to start with those earliest interactions in early days. Jonathan, Miriam, if you could share a bit about, you know, when you first started this company and, and when we first connected, what you remember from those early experiences. I remember is that it was COVID. The two of us were sitting in our living room and we had this crazy idea and we decided to make it happen. And recently, one of our member therapists who has been with us from the start, she sent us an email. She said, guys, you build a real business. This really became something. And so I think that that really speaks to what journey has become and kind of the process of growing. Yeah, I um, remember we basically decided to to build this company together and we had I think we had two months left of rent or something like that and when we started to pitch for the pre-seed and when we met you it was really really that that was it we had two or three months left of rent and we were ready to go and it happened and you know pretty quickly we were lucky to find people like you guys who believed in us early on and have been really helping us since then to navigate and counsel us and and been you know i think friends at this point building this business what would you say was the seed of the idea where did you see the gap in the market and where did you start I went back to school after being in finance for a long time and suffering burnout linked to PTSD. And, and so when I went, I decided to quit finance and I went back to school to study clinical psychology. And so as I was there, I wanted to be a psychedelic therapist. And when we started to consider what was the best way really to bring this treatment to the masses, I started to wonder if working with licensed mental health professionals wouldn't be the best path to do so because they're already embedded in local communities they have a relationship with the patient population. And so we started to figure out what was the main barrier to entry. And it was, you know, working with the medical staff. 
So it sounds like instead of building a vertical offering where you do everything and you hire your own psychotherapist or your own mental health practitioners, what you decided is to empower the existing practitioners. Yeah, we, we wanted to support the therapeutic alliance that they have with their patient because we really feel that that is the most effective and safest container to do so. So what was missing, right? Like you mentioned that the therapist and mental health practitioners have this therapeutic alliance, what they don't have then. When, when we started talking to the therapist, asking them what were the barriers to entry for them to offer this treatment in their practice, there was one answer that came back over and over again was access to a prescribing doctor. And so we realized giving them access to a medical staff was a way to empower these therapists. And then along the, the journey, what we've learned is that they also need access to resources and that they also need access to a community. And so we have become really this turnkey solution where if you're a therapist, you come to Journey Clinical and we handhold you as a therapist so that you can offer this treatment in your own practice and you don't have to worry about anything else except doing what you do best, psychotherapy. Yeah, I feel like, you know, it's it's a classic story of a startup going after a very important problem, but then thinking it's going to be simple and it's going to be one thing. And then along the way, you learn that it's a lot harder and many more things. And many times, if people would know how hard it's going to be, they wouldn't even do it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's a lot of fun and a lot of anxiety, you know. <laughs> I, I remember when we were raising our seed round and you guys were, I think I really had a freak out at some point that this was not going to work and we're not going to succeed. And you both told me like, you know, don't worry, you're going to be fine. You know, we're going to laugh about it in a, in a little while. And, and you were right. But I, I, you know, the ups and downs, believing in what you can doing or achieving impossible targets, pushing for that, believing in yourself and just overcoming adversity every day. I think that's what's, that's what it's like and just gaining a certain level of of comfort and that dynamic, which which has been just a great teacher and honestly a lot of fun. And and the other part I I can talk to is working with my wife, which is really pretty awesome and challenging at times. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 a wild ride. I think the startup. One of the biggest lessons is there's what you think you can do, and then there is what you actually can do, and that gap is really significant. And you can do much more than you think you can do. And leaning into that, those inner resources that you have, but that you don't really tap into because you're not entirely aware of them is, is quite impressive. There was a time where I wanted to actually do a podcast series about co-founding couples that were partners. So this could be episode one of a parallel series, FYI. But I, I am curious as partners, are you taking work home with you often? Are you able to create space between the startup and the other parts of yourselves in your life? Yeah, that's an ongoing challenge. <laughs> I think we really have to fight to keep some private space. Otherwise, work really kind of takes over and not the other way around. So it's about, you know, if we go to sleep at night, once we go to sleep, we can't talk about work. We can't talk about what we're afraid of. And then in the morning, we can pick it back up. Or if we're having a dinner on the weekend, I think you need to set really strong boundaries. Otherwise, work will come in automatically. 
Moving to the business, so you're really focused today on therapists that want to add ketamine-assisted therapy into their practice. Can you talk about some of the, I guess, specific therapists that you've worked with that you've seen kind of transition from not offering ketamine therapy to offering it, what you see as being some of the barriers that uh, exist, and and really like where specifically you're seeing Journey Clinical being a great solution for them? I think that many of the challenges is getting them to their first CAP session. We've got some therapists who are already trained with other centers, but who haven't had CAP session or given a CAP session yet. And, you know, are very anxious of what that dynamic is going to look like. We have therapists who actually haven't been trained in CAP. And, you know, we, we offer educational videos that can help train them up. So they really start from, you know, being completely novices all the way to delivering CAP. And I think what's been fascinating is that the suite of services that we offer, which include, you know, CAP educational videos, you know, peer consultation groups, talks, community offering, ongoing support. We're actually also rolling out uh, an experiential component for them is really giving them all the infrastructure for them to go from being a novice to being an experienced CAP provider. And the other big aspect that supports that fear is the community dynamic. And that's been a really wonderful thing to observe is seeing our members come together and support each other so that, you know, talking to other people who have done this before and, you know, getting the comfort to have their first CAP session, I think really has gotten them over the hump. And, you know, what's been amazing as Miriam has observed many times is that, you know, they, they're very afraid of what that first cap session is going to look like. And then they have it and they actually kind of get bored because, you know, you have a patient sitting there for two hours who's going inward with an eye mask and, you know, they're waiting for them to, you know, come out of it and, and do it. So, so I think that has been really an interesting learning for us and, and where we've been able to plug in is offer that infrastructure to get them from, you know, zero to one. One part that I'm curious about is how do the therapist bring up the CAP to the client? And CAP uh, stands for ketamine-assisted psychotherapy. The way they report about this is that they typically either update their website and include on their website that they do CAP. So they have people reaching out for that specifically. And for instances of existing patients, they simply put it out there and inform their patients, oh, I'm trying this new modality, I'm offering this, maybe this is something that will be of interest in the future. And then they let the patients, you know, read articles online, talk to other people, and let the patient come to a place of, is that something that could be of interest? And so they're really mindful about how they approach um, that conversation with their patients. So one thing I find interesting about your business is that you're really betting on CAP as a modality, right? So could we spend a, a little time talking about what it is about CAP that uh, excites you and, and why you think it's a modality that really should be integrated into more therapy practices? The patient outcomes that we see are quite impressive. What we have seen a lot is people with COVID being in a place of feeling stuck. And then that in turn impacts therapists. Sometimes they feel burnt out because there's no progress with talk therapy. And when they start introducing CAP to their patients in their practice, we see that after a few sessions, and it's fairly rapid compared to traditional talk therapy, patients start feeling better. And so we believe in CAP because we are seeing the clinical outcomes and people feeling better and therapists feeling empowered 
have with more tools in their own role as healers. And that's really encouraging and really beautiful to witness. Yeah. And I mean, there's a, there's a few other things. So we're also betting on psychedelics, uh, but CAP is what's available right now. Uh, there is, it's a very safe medicine, you know, I mean, given the positive benefits of it and the relative lack of negative outcomes that that have been going on, you know, it's, it's a, it's an effective way for psychotherapists to incorporate these treatments in their practice. And that's pretty amazing. It's also relatively cheap, which is good for accessibility. You know, I mean, the other thing that I can definitely personally attest to is that I'm a CAP patient and that has helped me with post-traumatic stress disorder. And I've done quite a bit of it. And it really, I've really seen firsthand the benefits of CAP. So we're, we're, we're believers and uh, adopters uh, of these treatments for sure. Can you just spend a moment describing how CAP works? Sure. There's two approaches to ketamine therapy. There's the medical model where you know people will go for an infusion in that context. What they're, con- what they're concerned about is the neurological impact of ketamine on the brain. So essentially, there's a theory called the glutamate theory of depression, whereas if you're if you have poor regulation of glutamate in your central nervous system, that's one of the physiological causes of depression. And so CAP is antagonist to a neuroreceptor called NMDA, which is the receptor for the neurotransmitter glutamate. Antagonist means that it locks it. So if it locks it, it reabsorbs the glutamate and helps regulate it in the brain. The other part is that it increases neuroplasticity. So people are traumatized, ruminating on a same thought, decreases neuroplasticity and ketamine is very effective at, you know, as are other psychedelics, increasing neuroplasticity pretty quickly. But ketamine assisted psychotherapy takes into account this dissociative aspect and, you know, uses it, views it as an opportunity to either unlock or have cathartic events, which help people integrate, get insights within that context, which then with the therapist are integrated in integration sessions to promote long-term behavioral change. So, you know, for example, and that's, this follows very much sort of the ethos of what maps or compass or all these other companies are doing. Whereas you have something called a preparation session, you know, where they prepare the, the patient for what to expect, to what not to expect, work through ideas of transference, have a dosing session where the drug is administered. And then within the dosing session, there is a spectrum of strength. It can be a psychedelic or psycholytic session where they have more or less interactions. And then there are integration sessions where the work is done. Uh, And in that context, ketamine can be administered in various manners. So in the IV infusion, the medical model, it's IV. And the bioavailability, that's how much you get is 100%. Intramuscular injection, which is used at times in ketamine-assisted psychotherapy, is about like 98%. You have uh, intranasal, which is about 50%, and sublingual, which we use, which is a much lower bioavailability. And so this is just kind of like the spectrum of what ketamine-assisted psychotherapy does. And just for context, in terms of efficacy, when you're looking at IV infusions, someone who's on a treatment-resistant population, within the first 24 hours of an IV infusion, about 60% of that population became respondent to treatment. So it's very effective very quickly. So you mentioned that the therapy can be psychedelic or psycholytic. You mentioned that there's uh, different ways. I'm curious if you have any perspectives or insights based on the aggregated kind of data that you're seeing from all these sessions around which protocols work best, which modalities are more effective. You know, how can you bring back all these learnings to the therapist community? 
I know Gita Vaid has a, has a theory, which I think might be true, that people who are more traumatized or have higher defenses need a higher dose of ketamine to get past those defenses. And so that's something maybe that, that we've been observing. The other interesting finding, which I've personally experienced, and we've, we've heard from a variety of our therapists, is that people tend to have more cathartic reactions on the end at the end of the ketamine session and so you know that means that they have like really big insights mostly when they're coming out of it one possibility for that is that because it's a dissociative anesthetic if you're dissociated uh, you're sort of like coming back into your body in that context people often experience really you know cathartic events there and what about the protocol the patients partaking cap once a month once a week once a year how often should they do it? We have different protocols based on different severity levels. We call it different, the mild, moderate, and severe impairments protocols. And so, for example, someone who is more on a mild to moderate spectrum is likely to have one dosing session a month with three psychotherapy sessions in between. And somebody who is on a more severe impairment level will likely replicate the IV infusion protocols a couple times a week. And then we will transition someone from a severe protocol to a more uh, mild to moderate. One thing that is very important in, in the journey model is the ability to personalize treatment protocols. So we don't believe in a one size fits all. And so we really try to meet the patient and the therapeutic alliance where they're at and design a treatment protocol that is specific to this particular patient. So we are very mindful about how we design the protocol for each person, basically. And, and one more thing that Jonathan brought up before about the same patient reacting differently to the same dose really speaks to set and setting and the importance of set and setting. And that is something that in our network, the therapists spend quite a bit of time on making sure that one, you know, trust what the patient is here and then making sure that the music is here to support, that the uh, space is aesthetically pleasing, that there is food at the end of the session or co like coconut water or you know, smoothies. So set and setting really has a strong impact on the experience. Somebody who had a bad night of sleep, for example, may have a different reaction than somebody who had a really restful week. So we're, we're learning as we gather data, we're learning about how different people work more and more. And I think this will become really interesting at scale as we will have more data to look for insights. Do you have any data or observations about the efficacy of the telehealth model versus uh, CAP being delivered in person? Yeah. So we, we've started to expand our protocols and we're starting, we've, we now support, you know, remote CAP, we support group CAP. We're also going to be supporting remote group CAP. And so those modalities have been administered, you know, broadly in other contexts and even, you know, remote psychotherapy has been administered, you know, very well over the pandemic. It's, we, we, are, we have security protocols to make sure that there's someone there monitoring them. And so there's no real reason to believe that the efficacy of the treatment diver would diverge so much. Some people prefer uh, in-person cap and having their therapist close to them and or having their patients close to them. But we've actually 
everybody's been open to trying remote cap as well. So I think that's a modality that that's the way the world is going. And, and that's a modality that's going to keep evolving. One thing we're going to be looking to do eventually is to gather data on the efficacy of incorporating psychotherapy with ketamine. And so seeing how that impacts it. So maybe there's, there's a divergence with, well, maybe we'll find a divergence with groups who are doing it in person or remotely. How many therapists are on the platform today? About 140. So when we met you, that number was zero because you guys were just in the ideation phase. Can you talk about how you went from zero to 140? Yeah, of course. So when we met, we had zero. And then what we did is we created an alpha group. And this was really a, a group of therapists that are were already very interested in CAP or had a relationship with a prescriber that fell apart and that really wanted to offer this treatment in their practice. And so we had this 20 people alpha group and this group of people really helped us build everything. They told us, we need to have a group CAP. We need to have an informed consent form. We need your help with advertising. We have a problem with our patients. So that was really, you know, the the group of people that helped us build our, our whole company. And we kept that that group relatively small for for a while as we were building different parts of the business and then recently i think it was in in march about 6 6 weeks ago we decided that um the system was ready we had built our tech platform and the system was ready to take on an increase in therapists and patients and so we kicked off our our growth and we have now through different channels, including word of mouth, as well as digital marketing acquired about 140 therapists. And this keeps on growing on growing daily. So this has been really interesting going from, you know, word of mouth or like, oh, I know you, I did the maps training. I I mean, this um, other training to digital marketing, which is a lot less known and not people that we have prior relationships with. Is there a common theme for the successful therapists? Some of our therapists have converted their entire practice to CAP. And so the patients that stay in therapy with them do CAP and that's all they want to do. And they want to do MDMA when it comes out. They want to do psilocybin when it comes out. But it, it, it feels like a calling almost. It's people who believe in this industry and who want to make it their profession and be, you know, be practice psychedelic therapy. I think that also there is a common theme where the community aspect helps them get over the, the the first cap session and then seeing how other therapists are putting that together and how they're offering it. And us also speaking to them of how to grow their business as well has been you know very helpful. So one thing that I'm reflecting on is that because ketamine is prescribed off-label, it allows for all these different modalities, all these different ways of doing it. But then you mentioned MDMA-assisted therapy, and I understand it will not be that way in the beginning. So how are you thinking about that transition or integrating, adding also MDMA to your offerings, what that will look like, and when if at some point you will be offering that? A great question. So, you know, we are in close contact with, you know, organizations like MAPS and Compass Pathways, and we spend a lot of time speaking with their commercialization teams to understand what the REMS for these treatments are going to be like and what are going to be the requirements. REMS stands for Risk Evaluation Mitigation Strategy. 
the FDA includes a REMS protocol to manage a potential risk associated with a drug. For example, the REMS for Spravato, the esketamine nasal spray, requires it to be administered under the supervision of a healthcare provider and requires patients to be monitored for at least two hours after administration. And so it's not entirely clear at this point, as you know, what the REMS are going to be for MDMA. Are they going to be a requirement for two therapists? Are they going to require a doctor on site? Are they going to require a space that's been approved? Like they're all very open questions for the time being. But one thing that's that we're very confident in is that, you know, while putting to putting resources to putting people and ingenuity in our decentralized model, we'll we we can we can find ways, you know, maybe with traveling nurses or other solutions to support the and, and answer the REMS requirements. But it's going to be an interesting challenge and it's going to be interesting to see how these these treatments are delivered and how affordable they are also. So that's a lot of things that we're, we're, we're looking into and excited about as well. I want to talk about your business model for a little bit. That to me is one of the really intriguing elements of Journey Clinical. Can you talk to how you are monetizing the business and your strategy there? So on the business model, we have two revenue streams. The first one, we have a membership model with licensed mental health professionals, and they pay a monthly subscription fee to be part of Journey Clinical and have access to a suite of services and tools and resources and community. And on the other side, we have the patient um, or the client, however you want to call them. And these people get referred by psychotherapists. That means they're already in a therapeutic alliance and they get referred to our medical team and we have uh, revenue on the what we call an initial evaluation or an intake session. And then we have some revenue on follow-up sessions. Typically, we have about four follow-up sessions a year. So for the first year would be about five the intake, and then four follow-up. And so that's that's the revenue on the patient uh, side. So we monetize basically both sides, the, the therapist as well as the patient. We're also starting to acquire patients. So, you know, we're also a source of referral for the psychotherapist. And so... As we, we progress, that patient experience is going to progress and something we're put a lot of, putting a lot of thoughts into. So I think there'll be some room to innovate there, but it's a high margin business that is got, that's highly scalable. And at the same time, what we actually are really proud of is that we are able to support a high standard of care as well as having you know, a, a hyper growth business. I think that the design of protecting the therapeutic alliance from the growth aspect of being, being a venture back startup has been very important to us. That really enables a high quality of, of care at scale. That means you, we can continue to scale and preserve that one-on-one -on -one alliance. The other thing I like about the, the business is how you are really empowering therapists to remain independent in their practice, basically maintain their own autonomy and managing their practice as they would like to versus being part of a another organization where they're not able to manage things on their own. Can you kind of talk to how you think about that dynamic? Yeah. 
So, I mean, you know, what's really great is to see, to support small businesses. That's awesome. Like we're really happy about that and having people keep, you know, increase their revenue. And that's something that's often a bit hard for psychotherapists to talk about because there is the importance, of course, of primarily improving patient outcomes, but having them being able to increase their revenue and offer a suite of services is really a big deal for them. And so that's been a really uh, wonderful dynamic. And I think that we're solving Essentially, it's something that's an essential issue for them, which is finding a, a consistent, reliable source of medical professionals that to partner with, as well as you know, uh, a variety of offerings that, if you were to break them down, I think you're looking at something that might cost about you know eight hundred or a thousand dollars a month that you know they get through our membership, which is two hundred dollars a month, uh, and so you know, and then it pays for itself in one cap session. So, you know, they're, we're actually becoming essentially their back ends and they can, as you know, said, Matthias, do what they do best, you know, take on the therapy, support their patients and we, you know, take care of the rest. So it's, it's that in that way, it's a true uh, decentralized clinic. Yeah. For the uh, tech folks, the first time I chatted with both of you, I, I kind of made this analogy of being Shopify instead of Amazon. It's it stuck with me. It's it's a easy way for me to understand how your business works. It's it's a good feeling too. Like it's a good feeling to support small independent businesses, and it feels very healthy for any kind of ecosystem where you have more centralized, bigger players. To have people doing this work, it, it feels very human. It feels it feels really good. Yeah, I mean, another part that's been evolving actually quite substantially in our in our network is group practices and even larger group practices where we are able to take on you know what is pretty complicated is how and expensive to have a full medical staff that's available on call and all and training and legal and community and mentorship and all that stuff and so you know they're able to bring in their their therapist plug into to journey and we now have you know group practices with eight ten people who are uh, part of journey and we really support them have really great partnerships with them and so that that's very exciting as well one of the things that it's kind of unspoken and I would love for you to talk more is this idea of uh, helping licensed licensed mental health practitioners offer the treatment versus maybe someone that is not really thoroughly trained. I think what this model enables us to do is take on complex clinical cases, take on treatment resistance, depression. And in that context, when you have someone who is you know, has a PhD in psychology or is in LMFT or, or any of these other licenses, they went to school for a really long time. They trained for a really long time. They interned, you know, in hospitals. They have been in difficult situations and they're equipped to deal with potentially difficult circumstances. As we've learned with psychedelic dosing experiences, sometimes all goes well, sometimes it gets a little bit more complex. And so that really enables this, the model that we're building enables clinically complex cases to be helped in, in this setting. Yeah, I feel like in the past few months, we've been seeing more cases of maybe psychedelic sessions not going as planned or we, we're finding abuse. So how, how, how does your model protect against that? Yeah, that's that's very concerning, of course, to us. And to see, you know, I think there's been a number of recent publications, the Power Trip podcast and all that, where they had, you know, just terrible examples of, of people who were basically behaving abusively. And, you know, what we have built is 
essentially a tripartite relationship between the patients, the medical professional, as well as the psychotherapist. And so we have an ongoing relationship. Our medical staff, who's all highly trained, has an ongoing relationship with these patients. And so we are also an opportunity for escalation. You know, every time we have, you know, follow-up consultations for us are not simply an opportunity to, to prescribe more medication. They're mostly an opportunity for us to assess how that patient is progressing in their treatment, if they're still, if it's still eligible for them to have that treatment. And and also check in about how their therapy is going. And we're able, you know, to also, you know, if there were to be an event where a patient would say, we will ask them, you know, how's it going? I mean, not we, our medical staff will ask them, how's the therapy going? And, you know, if there's something that goes wrong, we can escalate, we can get them out of our network. So there is an opportunity for patients to do. So we're also working on including um, scales, I think, right, about how the... Um... Yeah, d- different scales on the therapeutic alliance for the patients to fill out. So the idea is 360 feedback. And we would like to have 360 feedback on from the patient around the experience with the prescriber as well as the experience with their therapist. And so we are adding some skills specific for the therapeutic alliance that will be filled out. And this 360, how we're thinking about it is, is really how we're going to go about preventing abuse. And one other thing we're in the process of developing is, I think we call it like a code of ethics, but really having a standard around if I'm a journey clinical member, this is what I agree to do, or this is these are the values that I, I want to live with. So that's also another piece that we're adding. And, and I think to, to speak to that, something really amazing has been happening is that you know, our member psychotherapists are asking to get badges that say I'm a journey clinical member. And so they view that as a standard of care of being, oh, you know, I'm part of journey clinical. This is a quality offering that I'm, that I'm giving to my patients. And so they're putting that on their websites so that people know that they're part of the, of the journey clinical network. We talked about the kind of abuse and how you can protect patients against that. Miriam, you also mentioned this idea that sometimes journeys could be challenging. And so can you talk a little bit about that? For example, what what would be an adverse event and how you handle a situation like that one? Yeah, of course, we have vigilance, a vigilance system where we call it two strikes out. So that's on the on the patient side, for example, the prescriber gives very clear directions of use that are also put in an email. If the patient doesn't follow the directions of use, we have a conversation. That's the first time. And then the second time we stop prescribing. We also actually ask for a copy of a government ID, again, to prevent abuse. So there is that that's part of like the the patient trying to abuse the ketamine, which is a real thing. And then there is the part of like a challenging journey where, I mean, we've had, you know, therapists that have had challenging journey when you have a patient revisiting sexual trauma, like that can be difficult both for the patient and and the therapist. And, And one thing in psychedelic journeys is when you go through these difficult experiences, is not to create shame for the patient to re-traumatize a person. And so in these instances, we work, we, I mean, the medical team, as well as the therapist work in tandem and collaboration together and have multiple conversations with the patient to make sure that the difficult experience can be integrated 
And so that tripartite relationship really becomes important in those moments of difficulty, because this is how we help accepting what is happening, not creating more shame, and then integrating the insights on the back of it. All right. We are going to move to the rapid fire round, which is Matthias and I asking questions and we aim for quick responses, but sometimes the questions are actually really loaded and end up being multi-minute, not hour, but a few minutes. My first question is, how many therapists do you envision on the Journey Clinical platform in five years? I mean, tens of thousands. And hopefully we'll get a thousand in the next year or so, and you know, we'll, we'll keep growing from there. That's what Matthias said. That's yeah. the bet. A thousand therapists by the end of the year. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, how many therapists are in the U.S.? About a million. Yeah, so that's that's what, 0.1%. Do you have any advice to founders raising their seed round? Yeah, I mean, it's a grind. You know, you got to keep going. And, you know, it's it's important to be ready, I think, to, to do it, to make sure that, you know, certain things are, are going to resonate with investors. It's also good to consider the timing and the markets. But once you go for it, you just got to keep going. It's a numbers game. And uh, well, as you both uh, really guided us through that process, you just need one. So, <laughs> so you got to keep going, even when you think that it's not going to work out. It might, you just, it's, a, it's you know, Matthias, you told me something. They said the startups, they don't die of murder, they die of suicide. I think that's true. And so, you know, that that's what's up. You got to keep believing in yourself and just keep, you know, pushing through and, and eventually it will work out. I mean, my next question is, what's the hardest part of your job? Everything's so much fun <laughs> and everything's so hard. Like, I don't know what is not hard. <laughs> you have to keep it all going all the time, no matter what. So what keeps you going then? We believe in what we're building. We believe in expanding access to psychedelic therapies. We believe in mainstream adoption. I think our society, there's so much suffering we need as many solutions out there to help alleviate the suffering and psychedelic therapies are one of them. And we really believe that they're here and this is only the beginning, the nascent stage. There is so much more to come. I love that optimism and I love that energy. And so... And vision too, yeah, visionary. Yeah. And so that's a beautiful way to end this interview. Thank you, Miriam and Jonathan, for spending some time with us. Thank you for the work you do. And we're very, very lucky that we met you early on in your journey and that we've been there to support you and see how you've grown into the company and the people and the leaders that you are today. Thank you. We're very grateful to have you and to collaborate with you on a regular basis and that you answer our calls when we're really freaked out. And so we're looking forward to the years to come. So much wise advice comes from you guys. It's unbelievable. <laughs> Thank you. Now I'm blushing. Reed Hoffman, the co-founder of LinkedIn, has a great quote where he says that starting a company is like jumping off a cliff and assembling the plane on the way down. Jonathan and Miriam, to me, really embody that ethos uh, and their grit and resiliency and passion and belief in what they're building and really being willing to take that hero's journey. So, you know, frankly, inspired by their approach and willingness to just put one foot in front of the other along their startup journey. 
Yeah, when everyone was building these uh, vertical ketamine at-home clinics, they took a completely different approach. And so definitely independent thinkers there. It's also a feel-good company in many ways. They are empowering independent practitioners. They are expanding access to psychedelics in a way that is very safe. So in this controversial psychedelic world that we're living in today, they're fairly uncontroversial. Mm -hmm. I'm also really intrigued by what their company looks like at scale. Let's say that they achieve their goal of having 10,000 therapists on the platform. You, I feel like you can unlock entirely new opportunities there. Yeah, what comes to mind is that the number of clinical outcomes that they will have with these 10,000 therapists, it's gigantic. And it's not only the number, but it's kind of like how diverse those clinical outcomes and protocols will be because these are all independent practitioners. So there's a lot that can be done with that information. Yeah. I also think on the community level, it really becomes powerful when they're able to connect and allow them to share information and be a support network in a way that at scale can be really impactful. Greg, we need to tell them all this. <laughs> I mean, ho ho hopefully they listen to the episode. <laughs> uh, maybe we'll do another interview when they're at the uh, 10,000 member. Let's do it. This is Business Trip, a podcast about psychedelic entrepreneurship. If you like this episode, you can help us by subscribing to the podcast and leaving a review. You can tweet at us or find us on the gram at businesstripfm. And if you're building a company in psychedelics or looking to get more involved in this space, email me at greg at businesstrip.fm. I'm Greg Kubin, and Business Trip was co-created by me and Matthias Serebrinsky. Producer and editor is Jonathan Davis. Sound design and engineering came from Zach Frank. Our theme music is by Dorian Love, and additional music credits are in the show notes. This is Business Trip. Thanks for tripping with us. We'll see you next time. <laughs>